Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. I'm joined by Madeline Davies, our Deputy News and Features Editor. On this week's podcast, Madeline talks to Tim Thorby, the author of a new report on Anglican Catholic church growth in London. We'll also be talking about Madeline's visit to one of the least deprived parishes in the country, following on from last week's visit to the most deprived. And our editor, Paul Hanley, remembers Bernard Palmer, the former editor and proprietor of the Church Times, who died this week. And as Christmas approaches, why not buy a gift subscription to the Church Times for a family member or friend? They'll receive the paper in the post every week, full access to our website and archive, the Church Times app, and a choice of one of three books – Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash Christmas to find out more. First, there has been a lot of talk in recent years about church growth. There has been a stereotype that the only churches which grow are evangelical ones. However, in a new report published by the Centre for Community and Theology, Time to Sow, Tim Thorby says there is evidence that Anglo-Catholic churches can and do grow. Madeline spoke to him. Some people may uh, have read the report we wrote last year called Love, Sweat and Tears. Uh, which was about church planting by HTB in East London. And, and I think one of the most interesting things about that report is that it, it did break a few stereotypes in people's minds. People didn't think of HTB in that way, and actually we found that very interesting. So we were kind of, we're an ecumenical charity. We work with churches of all shapes and sizes, and we were very keen to look the other way, if you like, towards the more Catholic end of the church. And uh, one of the stereotypes about Catholics is that they don't grow churches and they don't do church planting and so on. So we were very interested to have a look at that. And um, as you know from the report that we've just published, A Time to Sow, we have got seven great case studies of Anglican Catholic churches in London in deprived areas which are consistently growing. And we think that's a great story. But it's interesting because it, it confounds some of the stereotypes about Anglo-Catholics. So uh, one of the interesting things that I found in the report is that all of the churches that you featured um, are within the 50% most deprived parishes in England. Um, and I guess um, something which we sometimes hear is that in a more deprived area, um, church growth is much more difficult and we should perhaps have less expectations for growth in those areas. Can you say a bit about um, what you actually found? I mean, we deliberately chose parishes which are in the 15% most deprived uh, areas in England. Um, and in fact, some of the case studies we've got are within the 5%. So they see these are some of, these are some of the most deprived parishes in the Church of England and they are growing consistently and clearly growth is a challenging thing. All of these guys are working very hard but it shows to us that actually growth and poverty are not mutually exclusive things. I do think the idea that you can't grow parishes in difficult areas is a strange idea. I mean, if you look at the New Testament church, growth and poverty went together. If you look at the church in Latin America and Africa, growth and poverty go together if you listen to the bishop of burnley's uh you know any of his sermons really you know growth and poverty belong together so um i do find this idea that parishes which are more deprived you know the fact that they can't grow i do find that slightly strange idea something else that came out is that in in many of these churches giving had really significantly increased um, can you say something about how that might be achieved? Because I guess many people would expect that um, making those kinds of requests would be quite difficult in an area when people might be struggling financially. And let's be honest, a lot of people are struggling financially. There are, you know, a lot of people, low-income households, um, money is pretty tight. I think what was interesting about 
the priests in our case studies. They asked nicely, they asked respectfully, but they were prepared to ask. And I think that there's a, there's a mark of respect to your congregation in being willing to ask them to do difficult things. And what's interesting to us, if you look at the, uh, the stories, the congregations did respond. When you respect a congregation and ask, actually, even though it is challenging for them, they are willing to give. And, you know, we see from wider social studies, it's often, it's often the people with lower incomes who are more generous. Uh, so I don't think we should be entirely surprised by that either. One of the things I was struck by um, is that there were some kind of residents with the Church of England's own report from anecdote to evidence. Um, and there they suggest that um, growth isn't kind of exclusive to any particular tradition. One of the things that they found they did have in common is um, kind of intentionality. And you mentioned here that um, these priests, who were often quite young, had growth as part of their mindset. Um, do you want to just say a bit, a bit more about that? How important is it to actually have this intention to grow? Oh, yeah, absolutely crucial. I mean, to be honest, you put a growing evangelical church and a growing Anglican Catholic Church side by side and the things they're doing are very similar. Obviously some of the theology is different and obviously the liturgy is different, the style of worship is different. There are you know important differences in the way that they approach being a church but when you look at how they love people, how they're you know how they show hospitality, how they welcome families, how they welcome people generally, how they're inclusive, you know all these things they're very similar. And, and again, you know, should we be surprised by the, that, you know, the same, it's the same recipe, really, across different churchmanships. Something else I was struck by is that your colleague, Angus Ritchie, talks about how Anglo-Catholics or some Anglo-Catholics have embraced these sort of damaging myths. And that perhaps in the 20th century, a kind of culture has grown up, which is um, or can be almost hostile to growth. Um, suspicion particularly around megachurches. Could you say a bit more about this sort of question of culture? Um, because there's quite a few suggestions in the report that really it's, it's a question of cultural change that would be needed to make these seven churches that you focus on far more typical rather than exceptions. The seven case studies that we've looked at, the seven parishes, are very typical parishes. We, so we, we could have chosen churches from the West End, from the city centre, or you know, strange parishes with unusual context, and we didn't. We've picked seven typical parishes. The difference is, I think, in many ways, the leadership, and like we were talking about just now, intentionality. There's, a, there's an attitude. But they're authentically, faithfully Catholic in the way they go about being parishes. And so there's nothing intrinsic to Anglican Catholicism which is against growth. There's, there's nothing that says, I'm an Anglo-Catholic, I can't grow. There's nothing in the theology which is against growth. There's nothing in the churchmanship which is against growth. So when you take all that out, what are you left with? The only difference can be the attitude, the mindset, the intentionality. Just to pick up on something you said earlier, it's not just young priests. There's a, there's a bunch of young guys in these case studies. Angus and I might debate how young or old Angus is, uh, but also uh, some of the priests in the case studies probably, you know, uh, don't fall into the category of being youthful priests. If you look in particular at uh, there's one case study, St. John's, the, the vicar that really turned that round was in his last job, you know, mm -hmm. before he retired, which I think, you know, so we're, we're not just talking about young guys with a new mindset. Actually, priests of any age at any point of their career can grow churches, mm -hmm. even within these seven stories, we can see that. So um, I noticed that one of the findings is that there weren't Anglo-Catholic megachurches, perhaps on the, the size and scale that we've seen from evangelical churches. Um, and you suggest in the report that um, there's a modern reticence 
um, about mega churches and church planting, which isn't rooted in the tradition, um, which is of a much more sort of recent um, reticence. Could you say something about that? Yes, I mean, I, I have to say I'm, I'm not an expert in, in why that is the case. I, I don't really know why where that came from or why that is the situation today. But, you know, in London, there, there aren't lots of, well, there aren't any really large Anglican Catholic churches. I think the largest tend to be three or four hundred members, um, or, as in three or four hundred people on a Sunday. Um, I think the more important, and, and maybe that doesn't matter. I think the more important question to me is what are these guys doing? You know, there are some larger, well-resourced Anglican Catholic churches north and south of the river, and they're very lively and vibrant, and they do all sorts of interesting things. Um, I didn't find any that were growing consistently. Uh, maybe we've missed one. Um, we, you know, they're not growing. They're not church planting either consistently, and I, I don't really know why. And I think you know, there's a question back, really, to 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 the tradition and also to these churches around the question of. Uh, growth and what role these larger, better resourced churches might have to play. I mean, uh, you like to think that, you know, there's something significant could be done there. And do you think that Anglo-Catholics can bring a sort of particular gift to the time, to the church at a time when um, we're talking about renewal and reform? Um, I noticed that um, Professor Alison Millbank suggested um, our world is crying out for sacramental, holistic ways of living which unite body and soul to mediate the transcendent. Um, how do you think the wider church might benefit um, from Anglican Catholic growth? I think it has a lot to offer. Alison is much more eloquent on these things than I am, uh, which is why she wrote a forward for us, and we're delighted that she did. The, the, um, every wing of the church has something different to offer, and I, you know, I think in London, a city of constant noise and change, a church tradition which has something much more rooted, rooted in place and rooted in history. That that surely has something to say to a city of full of noise and change. Uh, but also there's something about the renewal of the tradition as well. It's not just about bringing something existing to the table. It's also about maybe there's a moment of renewal for the tradition itself. You know, um, when you look at Anglican Catholicism in the 19th century and the early 20th century, it was very vigorous. You know, it was very young. It was full of new, new things, and it's so. It's not just about nostalgia, looking back and bringing tradition to the table. It has something within it, um, an understanding of the Eucharist in particular, which uh, which is absolutely important for the Church of England and has something to say, even to you know the most happiest of happiest of evangelicals may find something to learn from their uh, Anglo-Catholics next door. You know, I think I would love to see uh, more conversation between. Uh, the different tribes in the Church of England. We all have something to learn from each other. Next. Last week, Madeline wrote about St Peter's South Shore in Blackpool, the most deprived parish in the country. This week, she's written about Shenfield in Essex, which is one of the least deprived. Tell us more. One of the ideas that we had um, at the paper after talking about this question of whether the parish system had a future um, was to contrast um, two who are in one sense opposite ends of a scale. Um, so as you mentioned, um, St Peter's South Shore, which according to the Church Urban Fund, the most deprived parish, and then St Mary Shenfield, which is one of the least deprived parishes in the country. Just to really look at the two areas who lives in these parishes, um, how do the churches operate, and then to ask the priests in the two areas what they felt their role was in that community and how it might differ according to levels of deprivation. 
Um, so just to give a, a sense of the extent of the contrast, um, the parish in Blackpool, um, 61% of children um, are defined as living in poverty. Um, and in, in Shenfield, it's just 3%. I was also really struck by some statistics around life expectancy. So um, boys in Shenfield can expect to live for 16, lo- 16 years longer than their counterparts in Blackpool. Um, there's also some statistics um, around the level of qualifications and degree um, acquisition. Um, and also around income. Um, so the weekly earnings in Shelfield are actually close to double what they are in Blackpool. It also brought to mind questions about social mobility. Um, so people will be aware that Alan Milburn has um, had in his resignation from the Social Mobility Commission. Um, and in his last report, he said L- London and its hinterland are increasingly looking like a different country from the rest of Britain. And how was it different in Shenfield? I mean, there aren't the same kind of needs as in Blackpool. So what sort of ministry does the church have there? Um, So a really important part of the parish um, is the church school, um, St Mary's, which is um, actually just just next door to the church, um, which is really nice and provides um, sort of an amazing link. So children can basically just walk across the playground um, into the parish church. Um, They're really familiar with it. um, And the priest there, um, Father Chris Mann, does assemblies once a week. um, And every other week it's actually in the church. Um, And we talked about um, how it really introduces children to a service, to a a simple liturgy. um, And just to some of the sort of historic features of a church, just being used to being in that environment um, at a time when a lot of children um, might not do that these days. And I have to say, um, I went to an assembly and they were incredibly enthusiastic. So we sang hymns, um, they loved singing, and every time they were asked a question, so um, asked for examples of what it meant to be a servant or to serve, they were sort of full of examples. Um, Father Chris um, offered to wash children's feet to show that example from Jesus about what service might look like and sort of overwhelmed by volunteers. Um, so sort of definitely a sense that they were very comfortable in church um, and very used to um, being part of the service. And the attendance at St Mary's is strong, average Sunday attendance of 193. Are all of the people attending there for the outstanding school next door? Yeah, so we had a conversation around that and I think um, there was an honesty there that, you know, some people are there to meet this attendance requirement and then be able to get into the school. There's also um, sort of families that do stay um, after they've received that sort of eligibility. And the priest there um, did describe it as sort of an enormous catalyst for the church, um, but was really reluctant to kind of judge people's motivation. Um, And he said to me, if people come, should we care why? Good grief, they're coming through the door. It's a gift, so respond. And after all, it's up to God, really. It's God's job. The Reverend Chris Mann says St Mary's is sort of chocolate butterscotch. It's firm at the centre, but very difficult to know where the edges are because it sort of melts into the community. Yeah, and, you know, he talked about the fact that, you know, you might not see people every week, but when you do see them, you know, welcome them. I I think he would never say sort of, oh, I've not seen you for a while. Mm. You know, when people do manage to come, then sort of welcome them. um, And uh, he talked about how, you know, sometimes dads will come alone or they'll come with their children or they'll come when um, sort of work demands enable them to. um, And talked about how they were really sort of community-minded. They have this um, sort of monthly dad's meetup um, which he's part of and it just I think really enables him to sort of stay in touch with people um, who perhaps can't make it every week but would would see themselves as part of this kind of more peripheral community. You conclude the piece by talking about some of the things that St Mary Shenfield and St Peter's South Shore have in common. I was really struck by the fact that um, the midweek Eucharist and I attended it in both parishes um, 
obviously similarities of liturgy um and also um they do that thing which where sort of people actually travel around the church to shake the hand of every single other person there mm. um which i think is quite a beautiful thing and um means you sort of get to see everybody face to face and i was really struck that um perhaps unexpectedly um sort of older women um are quite prominent in, in both communities um a generation which dr abby day is referred to as sort of generation a but also other people so um there are a lot of young mums um at this midweek eucharist um in shenfield with their babies and their children some of whom have actually become um confirmed recently and also in st peter's um sort of younger people um including a young man sort of exploring ordination um and that was something that i sort of noticed in both parishes I also think both priests are devoted to um, the parish, to a geographically def- defined space, um, in places that are actually marked to some extent by transients. So in Blackpool, um, there's a lot of rootlessness. You know, there's people that are there without family or friends or links who are perhaps sort of travelling between um, different houses or flats. And then in Shenfield, although there's more rootedness in one sense, you know, there's the pull of London and the fact that people are often working very long hours. Mm. Um, Shenfield's a base for them to then get into work or perhaps even travel abroad. You know, some of the dads are, are going off to Dubai. Um, and I think in both places, the church is offering kind of an anchor to a place and the priests are offering some kind of stability and community, um, which was really nice to see in both places. We learned this week that Dr Bernard Palmer, the former editor and proprietor of the Church Times has died at the age of 88. Paul Hanley knew him well and, and worked for Bernard. Could you tell us a bit more about him and his family? Uh, yes, uh, Bernard um, was the first to employ me on the Church Times. I, I came as as a junior reporter back in, I wouldn't like to say when. <laughs> um, uh, the, the Palmer family were astonishing. They, they founded the paper in 1863 um, and uh, ran it for more than 100 years, um, uh, and it passed from father to son. Um, uh, Bernard was, um, uh, he, he, uh, he studied at Eton and uh, Cambridge, and in all respects appeared to be um, a part of the hierarchy. Um, but it, the, the big difference was that it wasn't the church hierarchy, he was a layman, the, the paper was fiercely independent, and therefore... It, uh, it was able to be critical and sceptical throughout its time. Um, I mean, his, his key contribution, and both to the Church Times and really through that to the Church, was to move the mood of the paper a long way away from its founding principles, which was to support um, uncritically and fiercely the Anglo-Catholic cause within the Church of England. And he broadened it out through his time. Um, so that it, it appealed and covered um, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the doings and the opinions of, of throughout the whole range of, of, of Anglican thought. In that process it became a more liberal paper because that's what the essence of liberalism is, it's to be open to um, all the traditions. I, it, I think it was a, a journey and he started the journey and can, has to continue that journey even even today but nonetheless um, that was the significant change he made um he was also a wonderful man he was very reserved um, his his background made him seem a very victorian patriarch in a way <laughs> when when i first joined um the, the paper we were in this huge building in portugal street um uh, and it was very much upstairs downstairs uh, slightly 
confused by the fact that the very top floor was where the printers were. So it was upstairs, <laughs> downstairs, upstairs. Um, but nonetheless, um, it, was, it seemed very hierarchical. But when you got to know Bernard, um, that was the last thing that was important to him. Um, uh, he was, had a great sense of humour, great sense of indignation um, at things that took place in the church. And, um, but also a, a great love of the Church of England. He, he was very respectful of people who deserved respect. Um, and I think that was a key part of the paper in his time. He, uh, he had a bit of a battle on his hands, didn't he, when he sought to change the churches? This, when he sought to change the stance of the church times to broaden it? Oh, um, yes. Uh, the readership of the church times is, um, is not shy about expressing its opinions. Um, and uh, I was just reflecting today, we've had two of the last seven archbishops have, have um, cancelled their subscriptions. Um, Geoffrey Fisher... Um, was fed up because Bernard wouldn't publish yet another letter from him about the Anglican Methodist um, uh, unity scheme and um, so it was the first I, I managed to lose one as well but we won't, won't go into that um, so it was it's another sign that, that um, the paper's independence was, was a huge gift to the, the ordinary people in the church it wasn't, wasn't in any way beholden to the I remember Bernard often would tell people about how one of his first bosses on the paper when he joined in the 40s, I think, was Edward Heath. Yes, well, again, of course, Edward wasn't his, he was, he wasn't his boss. He, in a sense, he was well. his employee as well. Because <laughs> yeah, Bernard, when he, he, he joined the firm, he, was, he, was a, he worked as a junior reporter, but he was also managing director at the same time. <laughs> it's an odd position to be <laughs> Yes, very um, bizarre. And, uh, and there was a huge row on the board about his, his coming and, um, and various board members left and there was, there was quite acrimonious at times. Uh, um, Edward Heath was, was fairly semi-detached while he was on the staff. He was looking for a seat, wasn't he? That's right, so he, he wasn't present very, very often. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yes, but Bernard did, did work with him. And why did Bernard decide to, to sell the paper, having had it in the family for so many generations? Well, he had no um, obvious... Uh, his, his children weren't interested in taking it on, um, and um, he wanted to secure its legacy, really. So he, he, he rejected quite a few um, odd bids from people who wanted to use the paper for their own ends. Um, um, he he retired very early age. He was only sixty, but he he um, he had worked long days and um, and wanted to spend more time with his his lovely wife Jane. And mm. um, they did. They went on very extravagant walking tours um, for many years until she died. But in retirement, he's been remarkably active. I mean, mm. it's only until his site went um, eighteen months or so ago that he he he's constantly been reviewing for mm. us he's he, he's written several books about strange bits of the Anglican history including um, Gadfly for God the history of this paper yeah which is again a, a, a fabulous read I'm not sure whether it's in print but um, it is um, the tone of it he, 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 he doesn't take himself seriously and, and prints all sorts of errors that the church times created and fell into at, at different times um, no it's it's He's a great loss. I mean, he he was very supportive of me. He um, 
sent endless letters of, of essentially of praise of the things that were going in the paper and um, it was I found him a great encouragement and, and very much feel as if I'm walking in his footsteps. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website www.churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.